Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Park. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. You can catch the whole show here live on News Talk 93.1 FM WABCV. Be sure to subscribe to the Joey Clark Radio Hour podcast, available where podcasts are available Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, the TuneIn app. So many options, including SoundCloud. Just search for the Joey Clark Radio Hour on your preferred podcast app, and it should be there. Now to the program. Everybody is a buzz. Well, no, not really. Everybody isn't a buzz. But some people are talking about the Climate Town Hall. Last night on CNN. It was seven hours long to begin with. Now, a big complaint about a lot of the presidential debates and forums is that they aren't long enough. That you can't really share your vision for the country within one or two minutes, which is fair. I think that's a fair assessment. But how are people going to sit for seven hours and watch the hand-wringing and the apocalyptic doomsaying that is now making up part of the Democratic Party? It was deeply revealing, though, about how Democratic presidential candidates think about government's power. See, this is the thing. It's not just a matter of talking about climate science or climate change and the different degrees and different outcomes. It's more about the solution offered. The left and the right to a certain extent, but definitely the left, constantly plays this game. If there's somebody who's sick, the government should take care of them. If there's somebody who's hungry, the government should take care of them. If it's something good in general... Whatever it is, the government should provide it. And this is, of course, the answer to the complex problem, if it is a problem at all, of climate change. So what was revealed last night, really, was how Democratic presidential candidates think about government's power to regulate virtually all aspects of human behavior and how they approach policy and cultural change. The Democratic contenders have laid out plans costing anywhere from $1 trillion, that's the price tag for Pete Buttigieg, to $16 trillion, Bernie Sanders. In direct federal spending, they want to spend on climate change from $1 trillion to $16 trillion over the next decade. About half of the candidates have endorsed the Green New Deal proposed by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as well as Senator Ed Markey, which could cost as much as, wait for it, 
$90 trillion to implement over 10 years. As important as any specific policy or position outlined last night were the general attitudes widely shared by all of the participants, all the presidential candidates running for the Democratic nomination. A number likened fighting climate change to the effort we took on as a nation to win World War II. It's a metaphor that perhaps says more about their comfort with regimenting society than the speakers intended. For instance, during World War II, all industrial production was overseen by the federal government. Food and fuel were rationed, and civil liberties were sharply curtailed in the interest of defeating the Axis powers. And at least when it comes to a war, there's a clear objective. Kill the enemy, destroy the enemy's infrastructure until they relent and surrender. It's a pretty clear goal. We have stretched the metaphor much too far when it comes to if we can fight the war that beat the Nazis, we can do anything. If we could put a man on the moon, we could do anything. Well, really, at the end of the day, defeating the Nazis is a very clear goal. It's not easy. It's a pretty straightforward goal. Kill them. Kill people and break stuff until the Nazis relent. Putting a man on the moon. Literally, it's right there in what I just said. Put a man on the moon. Not easy, but pretty straightforward goal. When you're talking about reducing climate change by removing carbon emissions from the atmosphere, slowing them and removing them, what's our clear goal here? So it's one thing to have an emergency that essentially has an all-powerful totalitarian government meet a very clear goal in the case of World War II. But when there's not a clear goal, no end in sight, we're going to do the Green New Deal while also having another open-ended war such as the War on Terror, though we don't call it that anymore. This is a worn-out metaphor. Winning a war is not the same thing as transforming an economy. It's much more complicated than they want to believe, or I think they believe, themselves. In a related way, the candidates all bought into the apocalyptic premise, premises of the questioners, who took for granted the idea that the world is likely to end in a decade or so, even though that's not exactly what scientists have said. But the world will end as we know it in a decade or so, unless massive transformational change takes place. The resulting conversations were thus long on the need for action, and short on the need to build consensus, or to fully assess the costs and benefits of particular actions. Here are, you know, like four memorable moments involving the leading candidates. Whatever, and this is the beauty of our current social media age, whatever former vice president and Delaware senator Joe Biden actually said last night will forever be a footnote to the fact that his left eye apparently filled with blood during his time on stage. Leading one pundit to suggest that, quote, individual Biden body parts are now generating their own gaffes. 
you know, that's happened to me. I've seen that happen to other people. A, a blood vessel bursts. I had a large blood, you know, whatever it's called, after LASIK surgery. Too much pressure in one eye. And it went away. And it's, I've seen it with family members. It's something that happens. It's usually not a big deal. But because Joe Biden is old and sleepy or whatever, that's what everybody's talking about. Which is about par for the course when it comes to our presidential elections, especially this early. A seven-hour conversation about climate change and government policies to address it. But what do we talk about? The blood in Joe Biden's eye. The bloody eye won't help a campaign, of course, that has been plagued with questions about the 76-year-old's mental and physical health. But the less we remember about what Biden actually said on the campaign trail, the better, probably. Indeed, the nation's only fully satisfied Amtrak writer had barely started talking when he announced, quote, we can take millions of vehicles off the road if we have high-speed rail. That's a callback to President Obama's high-speed rail plans, which went nowhere, even when the Democrats controlled the White House and Congress. There's simply no reason to believe that high-speed rail will ever successfully be built out in America. California alone has spent a decade and billions of federal, state, and local tax dollars while making effectively zero progress on its high-speed rail project. And even if it does get built, there's little reason to expect high-speed rail yielding meaningful environmental benefits. Now that moves us to Pocahontas. Elizabeth Warren. At one point she said, we only have 11 years to cut our emissions in half. So her answer to that, just accepting that's the problem. We only have 11 years to cut our emissions in half? Well, what's your solution, Liz? We have to stop using nuclear power. Huh? Elizabeth Warren famously has a plan for everything. This is what some people will say, and unfortunately she does. These plans, in my opinion, well, are dangerous to your pocketbook and your liberty. While the former Harvard Law School prof sidestepped questions about whether the government would continue to dictate what light bulbs Americans can buy, so it means, yes, under Elizabeth Warren's presidency and administration, they will continue to dictate what type of light bulbs you can buy. I know that's not the biggest issue on the plate for most Americans, but it's still an example of a larger trend. She did stress, however, that we've, quote, got, what, 11 years, maybe, to reach a point where we've cut our emissions in half. In suggesting that the world will end, or something like that, in 2030, unless we dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions, Warren is invoking Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's stunning misreading of a 2018 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. Far from declaring, this is from the UN itself, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Far from declaring that the planet would soon be fried, the report actually theorizes if humanity does nothing whatsoever to abate greenhouse gas emissions, the worst case scenario is that global GDP in 2100 would be 8.2% lower 
than it would otherwise be. That's from the UN. So if we do nothing, our growth, our global GDP, though how, how are we calling it? It's gross domestic product, but on an international level, isn't language fun? But it, it would be reduced over 100 years by 8.2%. Now, that's a lot of money. That's trillions of dollars, but we would also still be growing trillions of dollars. Now, whether or not that prediction or projection itself is reliable, Elizabeth Warren clearly believes in the 2030 apocalypse. That makes the stance she took last night against nuclear power quite puzzling, since nuclear power is much cleaner than fossil fuels or coal. In my administration, we won't be building new nuclear plants. We will start weaning ourselves off nuclear and replace it with renewables. We just have to have the courage to do it. Which is to say she's in line with many progressives, including Bernie Sanders, Ed Markey, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. All who simultaneously say simultaneously that the world is ending. But nuclear power should remain off the table. Even as they push solar panels, which produce 300 times more waste for the amount of energy created than do nuclear plants. This is according to an environmental researcher, Michael Schellenberger. Staring down a supposed existential threat, Warren and her anti-nuke allies still have principles or something like that. Then we get to a point that I addressed earlier. A teacher at the town hall said world population was growing beyond the planet's carrying capacity. And asked Bernie Sanders the following. Empowering women and educating everyone on the need to curb population growth seems a reasonable campaign to enact. Would you be courageous enough to discuss this issue and make it a key feature of your plan to address climate catastrophe? Well, Martha, my answer is yes, said Sanders. Of course, pro-life activists are quite bothered by that answer by Bernie Sanders and his willingness to support taxpayer-supported birth control, including abortions, in his quest to defeat climate change. For those of us who believe in well, let's just say, for people who believe that they are pro-choice, that a woman should have some means to control her reproductive body, at a certain point in the process, it might not be till you know right before the day of birth, but you know, let's just say, for the sake of argument, there are some pro-choice people out there, so to speak. That's usually not the reason people support abortion rights. In fact, what was the old talking point from the Democrats, especially the Catholic Democrats? Abortion should be rare or something like that. They had a few other words, but the point was, we don't want people, we're not pro-abortion, we're pro-choice, we're pro-freedom. You know, I'm all about freedom, but it sounds like that if you want... To re- the premise of the question and Sanders' answer is that the world is, has too many people. Too many people being born. Too many mouths to feed. Okay, Thanos. 
So what we need to do is give people the freedom to have an abortion. It sounds like you want you them to use their freedom, women to use their freedom in a certain way. Interesting. As the folks at our world in data note, global population growth reached a peak in 1962. 62 and 63, with an annual growth rate of 2.2%. For the last half century, we have lived in a world in which the population growth rate has been shrinking. And that shrinkage is not a problem, folks. The United Nations has changed its projections for global growth. Global population population growth, to be specific. It's now even... The UN now even suggests 27% chance that the global population will peak and start to decline by 2100. And then there's this. Demographer Wolfgang Lutz. You know, I like being named Joey. But if my parents had named me Wolfgang, I wouldn't have mind that. Oh, Wolfie, come here. And his colleagues, Wolfgang's colleagues at the International Institute of Applied System systems analysis, believe that the United Nations projections are likely to be too high. In their 2018 demographic assessment, the Institute of Applied Systems Analysis calculates the medium fertility scenario that would see world population peak at about 9.8 billion people at around 2080 and fall to 9.5 billion by 2100. If worries about the world ending by 2030 are overstated, so too are fears of a planet that can't support its population. Especially given the incredible strides we've recently made in reducing global poverty and increasing general living standards. Again, folks, I still have a a cynical heart when it comes to politics, like all these folks that were on that climate town hall last night for seven hours with the CNN geniuses. That's where my cynicism still resides. I'd point it directly at them. But more generally, I'm getting a little tired of the cynicism about the world at large because it feeds into the cynical games the politicians play. They want to tell you that everything's going to hell. Everything's going to crap. And the problem is you. And the solution is give us more power so we can control more people. But generally, the world is getting better, almost by every metric. Read Matt Ridley. Read Steven Pinker. Read Deirdre McCloskey. I'm throwing out these names because I want you to read their books, or at least get an audiobook version and listen on the car ride. While you're not listening to news talk. You'll be surprised That despite the constant barrage of negative news, because if it bleeds, it leads. If it's catastrophe, well, people are going to watch it. But not just from the news, but from the politicians themselves. They try to pull you down like a drill sergeant, just break you down into the fetal position, and then offer you hope. It's a pretty ridiculous form of hope. Now we're moving on to... Kamala Harris. Plastic straws are a big thing right now, said CNN's Eric Aaron Burnett to Harris. Do you blan blan? I've been hosting radio now, folks, for three hours and twenty-seven minutes. 
This is my seventh hour going on strong, though I wasn't hosting from noon to three. My tongue is a bit tired. Excuse me, pardon me, but Aaron Burnett asked Kamala Harris, do you ban plastic straws? I think we should, yes, she replied. And then she proceeded to laugh uneasily as she said paper straws were not very good. See, this is kind of Senator Harris's problem. She's all over the place. Not only does she scare the crap out of conservatives and libertarians and Trump nationalists, the people on the left who are going to be doing all the voting in these primaries barely believe her. She is all over the map with her policies. It's, I haven't seen somebody talk out of both sides of their mouth and their backside like Kamala Harris in quite some time. And honestly, when it started, I wanted to like her. But no. I don't think she is um, going to be the nominee, despite her punching the crap out of Joe Biden in one of the first debates. Tulsi Gabbard. Maybe she's on the the take from Biden. But no, I think Tulsi Gabbard was trying to make a name for herself. Didn't quite work out for Tulsi in the way she hoped. But she just neutered Harris. He just cut her. It was bad. A vicious attack that I love. And it's just an example of Harris on almost every issue. Talking out of both sides of her mouth. And this is another small example. I would ban plastic straws, but (laughs) but paper straws kind of suck the hell is that the moral panic folks about plastic straws exemplifies how discussions of environmental issues go off the rails the erroneous idea that americans use 500 million straws a day was based on a school project done in 2011 by a nine-year-old America, in fact, contributes only a small portion of the world's plastic pollution problem. And straws represent just a tiny, tiny fraction of that plastic pollution problem. And yet, by the end of last year, plastic straws were, quote, an endangered species around the country due to outrage over a made-up number. This is how our politics is working. People, the steel line from Reagan, know so much that just isn't so. But they want to do something. They want to be good citizens, good stewards of this world and their fellow man by controlling them and telling them what to do. Give me a break. But here's the thing. Senator Harris wasn't simply trash-talking plastic straws. She also spent time attacking the eating of red meat, which, because I'm a child and a contrarian, makes me want to go eat a big steak dinner tonight. I'll probably go with some salmon and rice and broccoli and some crab dip and keep it seafood, keep it fairly healthy. But just because Kamala Harris said, stop eating red meat, I want to go get a big old ribeye more than a pound. Base that sucker in some butter with some garlic and thyme. Mmm, with a big old sweet potato. Whew. Anyway, she attacked the eating of red meat 
and was calling for the end of land sales for oil and gas drilling. And she pledged to end fracking, the very technology which in recent history has helped lower U.S. greenhouse emissions to record low levels. See, but it's never good enough. Technological solutions and marginal progress through technology and market-tested trade. That's not what we're going for, folks. We're going for control because this is an emergency. Give me a break. That's just some of what happened in that seven hours. I don't want to keep going with it because, to be honest... It all comes across as hysterical. I am more than happy, folks, to listen to actual climatologists, people from NASA and other places. It doesn't mean I'm going to completely agree with you, but I'm more than happy to listen to the science they are offering up. I'm happy to read the IPCC's reports. But the way politicians take some of the science and then prescribe their politics to it, my God, what have we done? But it seems to be the trend these days, the soft despotism of the United States federal government and of Americans in general. We're so worked up over the culture wars and there are people who have sinned in my opinion, on both the right and the left, we've encouraged it. Everybody under the sun is to blame for our division in this country. But the soft despotism of the federal government is the problem. What does soft despotism mean? Well, more about that after the break. Joey Clark. Welcome back to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. You know, as I've been talking about on air, I've been weightlifting a lot, working out a lot. Now, I've been doing all sorts of types of training, plyometrics, yoga, weight training. I've really enjoyed it. But one thing I love, especially about, like, the heavy, what we call compound lifts, things like squats and deadlifts and whatnot, is that especially when you're not ready, maybe didn't eat enough in the morning or whatever, when you're going for a goal that you haven't yet met, weightlifting will humble you. And that's what it did to me this morning over Express Fitness 24-7. But that's always a good reminder to be humbled. To think, mm, you know, I, I've got in my head that I'm getting pretty good at this thing. But I had to stop today. I had to stop. I was just too worn out. Like after eight reps, 225 deadlifted, the weight seemed fine. Like I was lifting it off the ground fine, but I usually recover. You take a minute rest for the next set, but I couldn't go. I was like, no, nah, I got to call it a day. And we had done some more before that, but. The point was, man, I thought I could do more than I could. I feel a bit humbled. And there's something about exercise in general that I think 
helps me and I think helps a lot of people. It doesn't have to be weightlifting. And at Express Fitness 24-7, they have all sorts of options over there. You get your cardio in, do some lightweight training if you so please, or if you want to join me on my journey of doing everything under the sun and killing myself every morning, come on. I work out. I mean, you can join me Tuesday and Thursday mornings at 9.30 if you like. But... If you want to go at any time, that's what's the name. That's what's in the name. Twenty four seven at Express Fitness. Once you become a member, you get a access key, key fob. Go whenever you like. Twenty four seven, three sixty five. Locations all over the River Region, but I highly suggest going to the Zelda Road location in the Hillwood Shopping Center. But if you're looking for a place to work out, whatever location for Express Fitness twenty four seven, go to Express Fitness twenty four. Dot com Express Fitness 24, the number 24.com, and tell them Joey from the radio sent you if you do happen to find yourself at Express Fitness. Just a recommendation. No judgment here. I know it helps me. Hopefully, something like this could help you. So, when I left off, I was talking about soft despotism. It's a term I throw around here and there. Especially when I'm all alone, I start thinking about the problems in this country. I start thinking really generally, like, who thought about despotism coming to the United States before? And what did they think would happen? Well, there's this guy you might remember from your history classes. At least you should remember. Alexis de Tocqueville. Now, he's the guy who made the excuse, he's a French aristocrat, so he made an excuse to the French authorities that, let me finance a trip for me to go and review the American prison system. But that's not what was in the cards. That was just an excuse. He was actually looking into the great democratic experiment going on in the United States. And he was wondering, how does this work? Because, well, in other parts of the world, democratic revolutions didn't end as peacefully, as stably as they did here in the United States. It wasn't always hunky-dory here in the States, but there was a remarkable leap forward for democratic institutions in this country. So Tocqueville wanted to understand them. And what he came up with, he wrote a lot, several volumes, Democracy in America by de Tocqueville. But to give you the bottom line, So democracy works when it is local. Do we have that today? Well, we have local elections and state elections, but a lot of the focus and energy and time spent and money spent goes towards national politics. I don't think that's a good trend. So he said local. Democracy works when it's local. Democracy works, interesting enough, when it's voluntary. Not just voluntary in the sense that you freely choose who to vote for, but voluntary in the sense that the government is really there just as a backstop rubber stamp on things people would do anyway without the presence of government. We're not talking about criminals. We're not talking about 'er ne'er-do-wells. We're not talking about the folks who in many ways become a charge or a ward of the state. We're talking about the average person as well as the above-average people in a given community. What would they do anyway? in order to make their place, the place they live, a better place. And government would kind of stand back, let those voluntary actions occur, and then say, okay, just to make sure this goes forward, we'll rubber stamp it and give you the government legitimacy. And I've seen stuff like that happen here locally. It's a good thing. So it should be local, 
should be voluntary for the most part. And the last attribute he saw of why democracy works in America is that it was infused with the spirit of religion. Now, we do live here in the Bible Belt. We do live here in this, what I like to call, city of a thousand churches. There is a spirit of religion in this town. Though I often hear many religious folks of many different denominations wish there was more zeal. Not in the sense of browbeating people into accepting your particular faith or denomination. Not in the sense of fire and brimstone, but more zeal in the effort to get out into the community and do things together. This is not to put down the people that are doing those things. There are many nonprofits out there, often started by religious people in this city, that are doing wonderful things and all power to them. But we could do more. And it doesn't have to be a particular type of religion, though in the history of this country it has been mostly Christianity. So those three are those are the three conditions for why democracy, according to Tocqueville, was successful in the early United States, early America. Local, voluntary, infused with the spirit of religion. Or at least it had a hope that the future would get better. And because of these bedrock fundamental principles and a belief in something beyond just the everyday here and now, people could have hope in the future. And you have to say, especially in an agrarian society where most people are working the land, you need that hope in the future. Because I've learned slowly how difficult farming actually can be. So ask yourself, if those are the three conditions, local, voluntary, infused with the spirit of hope, a spirit of religion, are what made America so strong for so long, where are we today? Well, Tocqueville prophesied, if you will, Tocqueville foresaw, he projected, predicted what despotism, tyranny might look like in the United States if it were to come to these states here of America. At first, he paints a picture of a future where a nation of isolated men in pursuit of self-interest are close to their fellow citizens without actually seeing them, touching one another without any real sense of feeling. He then goes on to write this. And when I read this quote, please excuse the old-timey language, the esoteric speech, but think about what your politicians on the left, especially the left, but also the right, are offering you. Think about the prescriptions they have for this country going forward. And in my opinion, does it live up, and in your opinion, does it live up to the basic formula that has helped America become the greatest nation on earth in many respects? That has helped America actually overcome its flaws? Tocqueville wrote, Above this race of men stands an immense and tutelary power, an immense government, which takes upon itself alone to secure these people's gratifications and to watch over their fate. 
That power is absolute, minute, regular, provident, and mild. It would be like the authority of a parent if, like that authority, its object was to prepare men for manhood. But it seeks, on the contrary, to keep men in perpetual childhood. It is well content that the people should rejoice, provided that they think of nothing but rejoicing. For their happiness, such a government willingly labors. But it chooses to be the sole agent and the only arbiter of that happiness. It provides for their security, foresees and supplies their necessities, facilitates their pleasures, manages their principal concerns, directs their industry, regulates the descent of property, and subdivides their inheritances. What remains but despair of these people under this immense government? All the care of thinking and all the trouble of living. Thus, it every day renders the exercise of the free agency of man less useful and less frequent. It circumscribes the will within a narrower range and gradually robs a man of all the uses of himself. The principle of equality has prepared men for these things. It has predisposed men to endure them and often to look on them as benefits. After having thus successfully taken each member of the community into its powerful grasp and fashioned him at will, the supreme power then extends its arm over the whole community. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated rules, minute and uniform, through which the most original minds and most energetic characters cannot penetrate to rise above the crowd. The will of man is not shattered, but softened, bent, and guided. Men are seldom forced by it to act, but they are constantly restrained from acting. Such a power does not destroy, but it prevents existence. It does not tyrannize, per se, but it compresses, extinguishes, and stupefies a people till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. Now that's Alexis de Tocqueville talking, a pretty over-the-top prophecy, projection, prediction. But ask yourself, does the government today, and do the people looking to command this government today, does it sound like what Tocqueville said? Is it like a, a parent, not trying to help people rise up and become adults and parents themselves, but keeping them in perpetual childhood, offering every little security and necessity and commanding every, almost every aspect of our lives? We're not quite there yet, in my humble opinion. But we're getting there, slowly but surely. And when... Our politicians paint these catastrophic images of where we're going if you don't give them power. You should become very suspicious. You should be suspicious of people that claim, I am your champion. Especially when they are soliciting you themselves. It's one thing for somebody to be your champion and they weren't even looking to be your champion. Dare I say that's a biblical notion of a hero. 
But when you have people constantly coming to you and saying the world is going to hell, this pessimism and that pessimism, this catastrophe on the horizon and the constant mistakes and inability of you to better your life, and all of that can be solved. All these catastrophes and all this pessimism and all that lack of power and agency to control and better your own life, it can be solved, at least a little bit, if you just elect me into power. Folks, if we want a government to stop violating our individual rights in the name of preventing suffering, then maybe, just maybe, people should stop scaring so easy and blaming every wicked or tragic thing that happens in this world because it has happened forever as a failure due to a lack of government control and action. If we wish to be a free people, it's a big if. Because the more I talk to folks, it's a big if. If we wish to be a free people, we must stop conflating your liberty with your agency, with your freedom, with your ability to do things. We cannot guarantee our freedom, folks, while we also try to guarantee our comfort and security. If we wish to be brave and intrepid, we must not fear the prospect. It is better to take risks and face danger than to live cowering in fear and hoping for the government, the state, to protect us. Again, I say if. Because often one man's paradise can be another man's hell. It's not that the majority of the American people are ignorant of their despotism. Or ignorant of the loss of the liberties so far. The American people, for all their nonsense they share on social media and how quickly they buy into the latest nonsense fad or fashion, they're actually quite aware of the situation if you get them to calm down and stop fighting over power. They're quite aware of it. We have a lot of smart people in this country. What I fear is actually people are quite comfortable, too comfortable, or too scared, or too lovingly despotic in their quest to save their so-called lessers. Or really to care for liberty at all. And as far as a lot of people are concerned, any American who does care for liberty, especially if somebody like myself here on public airwaves says, liberty is something we should shout from the rooftops. It should be our guiding principle, the cornerstone of this republic. I often find that the eyes of people looking at me when I talk about this stuff, well, that I'm not too far away from being locked up and thrown into a madhouse and branded a savage. Calm down, Joey. What are you talking about? We've got problems to deal with. Or the other side is too much of a threat. I get it. I will say this, though. I have changed over the years. The more I watch the process work, yes, I'm very cynical about our current day politics, how we talk to one another, how we make decisions at the political level. But I also have to say that the system that it, we have inherited, the Constitution, the checks and balances, 
inherent in that system, the more I, I come to adore them. These checks and balances are often frustrating, especially when you elect somebody, you vote for somebody, they promise you to do something, and in fact, they're going to make good on that promise, but some check on their power is keeping them from making good on that promise. But careful when the shoe is on the other foot. It might be frustrating in the moment, but in the long run, I've come to love the fact that this government is dysfunctional. I've come to love that this government is very difficult to use swiftly and fiercely. Now, again, there are many aspects of our government and our current day politics that are baked into the cake. Moderates for the longest time have been, we want a big defense budget, so-called defense, and we want a big welfare state. And we want to keep building that up. And that's where, I mean, this recent two-year budget compromise between Democrats and Republicans, everybody gets more money, everybody gets a school, everybody gets a fighter jet. And that's how they compromise in D.C., spending more and more of OPM or OPP. The last P stands for property, of course. We do live in interesting times. I mean, times where amazing things are being thought about, being in some ways accomplished. I think I just read this article on the Open Lunar Foundation. A group made up of tech executives and engineers, many of them formerly with NASA. They have serious ambitions to create a lunar settlement. That's right, a moon colony. The driving ethos behind the foundation is to start a development that would not be beholden to a particular country or billionaire. Instead, as the group's name suggests, Open Lunar wants to create technology for exploring and living on the moon as a type of collaborative effort. Here, here. Amazing stuff. Seems ridiculous, actually. But if they pull it off and they surprise the average person too much down to earth here, God love them. God bless them. And Godspeed. So we do live in amazing times where technology is allowing to do things we never thought possible. It's also scaring the crap out of us. How it's exposing us to people that aren't well, they don't have their best, your best intentions in, in mind. And yet we seem bogged down by the pettiness of our politics. The pettiness and the mean-spiritedness of it. Interview came out just today or yesterday with Marianne Williamson. In which she told, I believe, David Rimnick of the New York Magazine that she didn't realize the Democratic Party was so mean. I thought that was only going on in the right. Well, Marianne, you're finally elevating your consciousness. When you engage in the political game, especially at the presidential level, you're not talking about a, a walk in the park and a picnic. Even when you're in your own camp or tribe. No, this is a serious blood sport we got going on here. It's serious business. It's difficult business. 
Maybe Marianne Williamson was naive that she could just stroll on in with her self-help talk, her thoughtful analysis, holistic analysis of things, along with some usual left-wing bromides, and grab the nomination. She didn't expect to be labeled the crazy, kooky crystal lady who tells people not to take their AIDS medicine or go see a doctor. Though, as she claims, she's never done such a thing. We do live in interesting times, Marianne. It's good to see you're waking up a little bit that the, uh, the wolves, the sharks, swim in both sides of the pool. Well, with that, folks, that does it for me. I'll be back tomorrow to do four more hours of radio. That's, again, it for me tonight. Thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow.